Hey, welcome to Access. John here. C.S. Lewis once said that each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written, or will write, in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. In other words, when we see or read about a miracle, we tend to miss what God is trying to communicate to us through that miracle. Keeping this in mind, today's passage is going to examine what God might have been trying to communicate through the first miracle Jesus performed in turning water into wine. So, get a copy of God's Word handy and turn to John chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, because this message is entitled, The Jesus Mold. Are there some places that you're unwilling to invite Jesus to? If there's anywhere that you and I feel like Jesus should stay away from, it should show us that we already have an image of who Jesus is and what he's like and how he's going to behave. And to help solidify this point, consider that family member that you really don't want to see at the next family reunion. Why do you feel that way about them? Isn't it because they've acted or behaved in a certain way in the past and you decided, maybe subconsciously, that the next time you were going to have a family reunion, that you were going to accidentally lose their invitation? When people act out or burn us, we tend to close them out of our lives. And not only do we do this for our family members and our friends, I think we do this with God, specifically Jesus. How do you typically imagine Jesus behaving? I mean, if you were to invite him to the places that he's normally not welcome. Some people imagine a buzzkill Jesus where, you know, they're having all kinds of fun and, and, you know, they're friends, they're laughing. And Jesus walks up and says, Hey guys, remember when I died for you on the cross for your sins? And with a Jesus like that, the only thing that you can say is, Can't you just let me be happy, Jesus? Because otherwise I'm just not going to invite you. Maybe you envision a judgmental Jesus where you feel like he's just standing over your shoulder saying, well, you just bought yourself a first-class ticket to hell. Because with a Jesus like this, the only thing that you can say is, Jesus, why can't you just be nice? Maybe you picture more of a, a homeboy Jesus. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. I literally had a guy tell me one time, I believe that it's not wrong to smoke weed and that Christians can do that and that Jesus himself would smoke a joint with me. This could also be known as the pushover Jesus. This is the Jesus that we hope will be more tolerant of our behavior so we don't have to change anything. And I can tell you from personal experience, I used to be afraid of how Jesus would respond if I invited him into every aspect of my life. Which is why I will stand on the belief that the image that we have of Jesus will determine whether or not he can be invited into every aspect of our lives which is why it's so important that we get the right picture of Jesus. So I want to ask you again, is there any area in your life where Jesus isn't welcome? Let's face it, no matter how hard we try, Jesus just won't seem to fit the mold we want him to fit into. Isn't it true that we think Jesus should be more like us? Maybe you're guilty of doing what I tend to do when reading about Jesus. Like sometimes I, 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 I read things that Jesus said to people, and I'm thinking, ouch, Jesus. I would have tried to handle that a little differently. 
Because sometimes he, he just doesn't seem to act the way that I hope he does or hope he will. You know, just like reading the way that he interacted with people. I'm like, I would have handled that a lot differently. And I think because of that, I tend to establish out off-limits areas where he's not welcome. Now, one thing can certainly be said for the man. Jesus was full of surprises. He surprised everybody in the New Testament, even the people who knew him best. And this is certainly true for the people in today's passage. And um, just to show you what I mean, I want to look at John chapter 2, and I want to go through verses 1 through 11. This is what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. So when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they began to fill them, and they filled them to the brim. Um, and the master, I'm sorry, in verse 8, he told them, Now draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water and had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you take this very well-known passage of Scripture, this very well-known event that happened in Jesus' life, and I ask that you enable us to understand your truth and that you might speak to us through this passage and that you might speak through me. Most importantly, God, I ask that you use me to bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before I move into my points today, I want to quickly clear up um, a mistake I think I might have made last week regarding John's timeline. I didn't even discover my mistake uh, until I started studying today's text in, in detail. Now, I told you last week that in John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day... And I thought John was talking about the third day since he met or started following Jesus. And, and I suppose that's still a possibility. However, after studying about it, I think that there's a greater story John is trying to tell us. You see, in John's Gospel, he only numbers the days in two places. Once here in the beginning, and again before Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Both times, I believe, have significance. So why does John number the days in John chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2? I believe the reason why John is doing this is because he's drawing the similarities between the first week of Jesus' ministry and the creation week found in Genesis chapter 1 and the first part of Genesis chapter 2. John records that in four days uh, they, they pass, Jesus begins his ministry, and in John chapter 2 he says on the third day, which could mean on the third day after Jesus spoke to Nathaniel, which was the last event. Um, and that would mean that John records six days of Jesus' ministry passing, and here on the seventh day, 
Jesus is going to rest at a wedding celebration. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Maybe it's just food for thought. But notice that in this passage, Jesus, uh, right before that, he says, he says to Nathaniel, you'll see even greater things than these. And in this passage, uh, he delivers on his promise. And, you know, we when we read this passage, we, we see Jesus somewhere we wouldn't commonly expect him to be, which should show us that Jesus should be welcome at our celebrations. You know, when I was younger, I became really skilled at keeping Jesus compartmentalized into certain sections of my life so that I could enjoy freedom to sin in other places. In other words, Jesus was welcome to go to church with me on Sunday, but that was pretty much about it. I particularly didn't want him to go to the party scene with me. I mean, and, and deep down, I don't think this is because I didn't want to change my sinful behavior. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I had a tremendous sense of guilt and shame because of what I was doing. And it led me into a depression. I, I think the way I felt about Jesus not being welcome in my, in my celebrations, it, it had more to do with the camaraderie that I formed with the people who shared with me in my sinful habits. The reason I stayed there so long is because I enjoyed being around people who seemed to love me. And it was because I was a lot like them. Hey, we're guilty, but hey, we're guilty together. Hell ain't gonna be lonely. And in short, I, I didn't want to invite Jesus to come in because I thought he would screw everything up. Screw up all my relationships. These people that I had finally found camaraderie with, and this was my family now. Did you notice that in this passage, Jesus is in the business of changing relationships? He does it with his own mother. If he does it with his mother, he'll do it to us. In, in, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, our author John places Jesus and his mother and all of his disciples at a wedding celebration. All the commentary I've read on this event seem to agree that, that this wasn't uh, just a celebration that took place on one evening. That, that in Jesus' day, these kinds of celebrations, that they would be a week-long event. And it was customary for the bridegroom to provide food and refreshments for all the wedding guests for the week-long event. And, um, and in verse 3, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And for some reason, to run out of wine, um, it, it, for someone to do this at a ceremony, it, it would have been a public disgrace. That's what, what scholars seem to agree. In those days, it, it was considered to be an insult to be invited to a wedding and not attend. And the reason why is because those families who were getting married would have to be very careful only to invite those people that they could provide for for a week long. So if, if, if I invited you and I prepared for you, you didn't show up, that was considered to be very, very disrespectful. Um, but to underestimate this number of how many people w would show up or how much uh, resources you had to provide for all these people, it would cause a tremendous amount of embarrassment because it was like saying that you were better off than you were leading others to believe. And it was the bridegroom's fault that he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have invited so many people. That's what happened here. And, and, and notice, most scholars seem to agree that the, the, the culture that, that, that they lived in, that this disgrace would follow the family around and haunt the married couple all their lives. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, feels responsible for fixing this mishap for some reason. This, this mishap, like she, she comes to him and says, you know, they've run out of wine. And, and, and we can only speculate as to why she feels like it's her job to find refreshments because John doesn't include the reason. Perhaps it's because she doesn't want anyone to suffer the kind of shame and dis embarrassment and, and decides to try to, to spare them by fixing the problem. Maybe, maybe that's the case. 
But I would be willing to speculate that it, that it was probably more likely that, that Mary and thus Jesus were somehow related to the families getting married. And I think this is more likely considering that Mary, uh, she seems to have some kind of authority over the servants that she later tells to do what Jesus says. So whatever the reason that Mary is involved in this, Mary runs to Jesus for help. Now notice how Jesus responds to her. He says in this text, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, um, in other, other uh, translations of the Bible, it just says woman. Uh, I'm reading NIV, and for some reason it, it puts in dear woman, maybe takes a, takes a little bit of the, 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 softens the blow a little bit. But in the King James Version, I really like what it says. It says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, initially when we read this passage, especially the King James Version, it sounds as if Jesus is being very disrespectful and rude to his mother. I mean, in our culture, men aren't supposed to talk to their mothers that way. And so thus, Jesus can't talk to your mother. You can't talk to your mom that way. Well, the way Jesus seems to respond makes him sound as if he carries a big club and drags around, around women by the hair. However, the term woman used in this passage is translated from the Greek word gune, which can be used as a term of endearment and respect. Jesus uses the same word, woman, when speaking to his mother again from the cross. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was, he, 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 he was, not, he was using this as a term of endearment and respect. So why then did he didn't just call his, his mother mother or mom? Well, that's an excellent question. How Jesus respond to his mother in this passage can be translated in one of two ways. It could mean, what does that have to do with us? Or in the common vernacular, why is that my problem? Or it can be translated as, woman, what authority do you have over me? Now the latter translation seems to make the most sense considering what happens in this passage. Consider how things might have turned out if Jesus had said to his mother, Woman, why is that my problem? John would have recorded that Jesus' mother slapped him across the face and ran out of the room crying. But that's not what happened. In this passage, it says that she turns to the servants and says, Do whatever he tells you. Something is going on that is behind the scenes because it's, it's, it's between the lines. There is something that, that transitions. And happens because it sounds like Jesus is saying, ain't, I'm, ain't my problem. And then she throws it on him and says, Okay, do what he says. It's his problem, guys. He just said so. If this passage meant, Why is that my problem? Then why does he perform the miracle anyway? Is, is that the image that we have of Jesus? A Jesus that's far too busy to be worried about people's problems? And if so, then, then what did Jesus mean when he told his mother, My time has not yet come? What time was Jesus referring to? Jesus reveals the answer as to what he meant by his time when he says in John chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He says this when he's about to be handed over to the Pharisees and crucified by the Romans on the cross. Jesus is referring to the time when he fulfilled the purpose that he came to earth for. There is a good reason why he doesn't just use the term mother when he's talking about Mary or mom. He's subtly distancing himself from her. Jesus indicates that the relationship that he had with his mother is changing. Until now, she's had the privilege and she's enjoyed this privilege of being Jesus' mother. 
But now, see, he's beginning his ministry. She was going to have to learn to be his disciple. And this was no doubt a, a painful process for her. In fact, we see in Scripture that before this process was complete, that she and all of Jesus' siblings would have to feel rejected, like they were cut off from him, like he was too busy for them. She would have to watch him die a horrible death on a cross. And eventually she would have to realize that she too must bend her knees to the resurrected king. But in doing so, she would discover a deeper relationship than the one she had ever known before. You see, Jesus wouldn't fit inside his mother's mold for him. Coming and telling him, We're, we've got a big problem and it's time for you to do something. Jesus said, no, 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 no. What authority do you have over me? Let, let's, let, let's, let's look at things through the proper perspective, woman. This doesn't mean that he wasn't going to continue being her son, but that the nature of their relationship was changing. You know, I once had a conversation with a woman who had converted from uh, Catholicism, and uh, I asked her, why, why did Catholics pray to Mary? And she told me that most Catholics believe that Mary has the ability to intercede on the behalf, on our behalf, with the Son. In other words, um, our, our prayers carry more weight when we pray to Mary than to Jesus. And I would say this would be true if Jesus had not changed the relationship with his mother. If she continued to have any kind of authority over him, then certainly you should pray to Mary. However, that's just not what happened. One time we decided that in order to protect our students, we needed to investigate the doctrine of all of our youth leaders and all of our youth volunteers. And I'll never forget what one of our deacons who worked with the youth, Ted, said when I asked him, why shouldn't we pray to Mary or one of the other saints? And I love his answer. It was, it was kind of callous, and, but it was very true. He said, well... Because Mary and the other saints are dead. I mean, Jesus is alive. How Mary responded to the servants here indicates that Jesus meant, you have no authority over me. She submits authority over him by saying, hey guys, do whatever he tells you. In other words, we're not going to do this my way. I'm submitting to him. We're going to do this, thing, this his way. And before I move on from this point that Jesus should be welcome at our celebrations, um, that he, he should have freedom to change our relationships, uh, there's another irritating question that I'd like to ask, and, and maybe you're, you're, you're thinking it yourself. Did Mary know that Jesus was going to perform a miracle? And if so, wouldn't that suggest that Jesus did miracles as a, as, as a child? The Quran says that Jesus performed miracles as a child and that he once picked up some clay and he threw it up in the air and it became a bird. Um, other apocryphal sources, um, writings that didn't make it into the New Testament canon, say that, that he did as well. For example, the infamous Gospel of Thomas. But I would challenge you to really take what our author John says in John 1.11 to heart. He says this was the first of his miraculous signs. Besides, if Jesus had done miracles in his childhood, then he wouldn't have been rejected by his own hometown, and he wouldn't have had to say later on, only in a prophet's own town is he without honor. 
They wanted him to show him, show them a miracle to prove that he was the Messiah. And Scripture says that he didn't. Why were they looking for this? Because he never did a miracle there. I just want to challenge you to, to take Scripture at its word because it's complete. It doesn't need the Quran. It doesn't need apocryphal sources. It doesn't need other, other works of art or writings to come in and, and confirm. God's word is complete. It doesn't need outside sources. So yes, if, if you invite Jesus to your celebrations, he will likely change your relationships. He did with his mother. Why wouldn't he do it with us? However, I believe that if your relationships are turned over to him, that they will be enabled to meet their full potential. You won't need to continue having honor among a band of thieves to feel loved. Instead, you will see that love is conditional in that, in that, in that environment. That you have to continue sending with them to feel the love that you feel. And Jesus offers unconditional love from the Father. Your relationships will be enhanced because they won't be dependent upon your sin. Jesus should be welcome in our, in our parties and in our celebrations, and namely in our relationships. But Jesus should also be welcome in our workplace. When I was 19, I surrendered my life over to the Lord, and because I wanted to know more about Him, I started carrying my Bible to work with me. Now, one would think that others would be indifferent or even understanding if a person wanted to read their Bible during their lunch break. But I'm sad to report that for me that just wasn't the case. I never really understood why so many people got offended that I would want to read my Bible at work. The way that several of them acted about it, it was like, it's like they were expecting me to start shoving it down their throats very soon. And I never gave them any reason to think that way. I even had a friend of mine come up to me and say, you know, a lot of people think that you're strange because you carry that thing around. Wouldn't even say the Bible. Jesus didn't only change my relationships. At work, he started changing the way I was doing things. Jesus began changing the way that I saw my bosses, whom I normally complained about. <laughs> The way I felt about being at work, Jesus changed altogether. He reminded me that they were paying me to do a job, and I agreed to do it. But I was shortchanging the company by cutting corners and by doing the bare minimum. So if, if, if Jesus was going to be with me at work, he wanted me to go the extra mile. And for this reason alone, I can understand why somebody wouldn't want Jesus in the workplace. I mean, he changes the way that we do things. This was certainly true for the servants in the story. They weren't just at a wedding. They were at work. The Apostle John tells us that there were six stone water jars that were the same kind that the Jews used for ceremonial washing. What does that mean? That they were made out of stone instead of clay. That's what they preferred. Well, according to Jewish ceremonial law, people became symbolically unclean by touching objects of everyday life. Thus, they were instructed to regularly wash their hands, especially before eating. So they would keep these large ceremonial jars of water to wash their hands. Jesus tells these servants to take these ceremonial water jars and fill them up with water. Now filling these empty jars with just any water would make them unclean and thereby unfit for ceremonial use later on, thereby ruining the purpose of these jars. Jesus was changing the way they did things. 
However, because of the current crisis, these servants were ready to do just about anything if Jesus could fix the problem. And so they, they submit to Jesus' instruction, and they make a significant shift in the way that they usually did things. It's not an accident that Jesus calls for these jars. There was incredible symbolism behind what he was doing. Jesus was replacing the Jewish practice of ceremonial washing to be clean. Imagine being a Jew and needing to go out and wash your hands because you're about to eat, and all the ceremonial jars that should have had water in them for washing are now filled to the brim with wine. Jesus was showing his superiority over Jewish ceremonial law. It wasn't even an accident that these people ran out of wine because that too had incredible symbolism. Things don't just happen. They happen for a reason. God had a plan. You see, for centuries, the Jews were like people who had become dull drinking wine through their ceremonial practices. For them to run out of wine, it symbolized how there was no spiritual meaning left in their practices. Well, why did he transform the water into wine for his first miracle? This too had symbolism. You see, in the Old Testament, specifically in the writings of the major and the uh, minor and the major prophets, uh, especially Amos, overflowing wine was always associated with the prosperity that the Messiah would bring. Jesus turned water into wine to fulfill this messianic prophecy. Hey, I'm here. Hey, you remember the Messiah's bringing wine? Guess what? You got plenty of wine. This event should have caused the people to focus not on the miracle, but on what God had written that was so big that you could miss it if you weren't careful. The Messiah is here. For these servants, Jesus changed things around their workplace. But did you notice that John doesn't seem to include any kind of response, spiritual response in them? Jesus commands them to draw water out and take it to the master of ceremonies. According to a word study, the master of ceremonies isn't, isn't the head guy. He's just suggested to be the head waiter. He's the one responsible for making, things, making sure things go smoothly. And as soon as the master of ceremonies tastes the wine, he's overwhelmed by this amazing quality of wine. So much so that he goes to the bridegroom and tells him, you know, usually people start with the choice wine, but you've saved the best for last. I think it's both comical and sad that John makes no mention of the bridegroom rejecting credit here, saying, I didn't do that. What happened? And I think it's funny because, you know, he's so embarrassed, he, he wants to sp be spared of public embarrassment that he's willing to go along with everything. He's like, uh, you're welcome. But I also think it's sad because he stands in the way of others at the feast discovering what really happened. Notice, though, that, that the servants did know what had happened, and they didn't even let the master of ceremonies know what happened. I think if I saw something like that, I would be telling everybody, like, hey, this guy, you're not going to believe it. He just turned water into wine. And I think it goes to show that miracles, although amazing, don't necessarily elicit any kind of spiritual response in us. According to John, these servants just let Jesus into their workplace, but it was apparently all for nothing because they didn't understand the most important place Jesus should be welcome. Jesus should be welcome in our heart. The master of ceremonies most likely didn't understand the profound truth of what he said. The best was saved for last. Now, this is synonymous to what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which says, In the past... 
God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. For 2,000 years, God spoke to man through dreams and from clouds and, and once through a burning bush. 2,000 years he did that. But then another 2,000 years, God spoke to mankind through judges and prophets. And in these last 2,000 years, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Kind of really makes a person think that we might be living in the last of days, huh? God saved the best for last, and that he speaks to us through his son. Well, just what exactly does he communicate? I think the loudest message has to be this. In every man, woman, and child is a deep yearning, a longing to be loved. And mankind looks for this love everywhere they go. And most are either unwilling or unable to find love at its source. Love is here. I proved my love for you in this, that while you were still sinners, my son, whom I love, died for you. Let all who want love find it in him. Did you notice that in verse 11 it says, He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him? Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine didn't seem to elicit any kind of response in the servants. But here, after witnessing the very same miracle, the disciples put their trust in him. Why? I think it's because the disciples understood the most important place that Jesus should be welcome. The disciples allowed Jesus to be welcome within their hearts. Jeremiah aptly wrote in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Because of this, our hearts are the last place we want Jesus in. Maybe it's because we're afraid Jesus won't like what he sees in there. I mean, Jesus, I have some dark thoughts sometimes. And I know where it's coming from. It's coming from my heart. Maybe we're afraid he'll expose it in us. Or maybe we're afraid he'll expose it to others. And we wonder, will other people love me if they find out? But don't you see, Jesus already knows what's in, in your heart. You can run from him, but you cannot hide the contents of your heart. I think I kept my heart from him for so long because I knew that Jesus would begin to rearrange my priorities. You see, there are several things in my life that I put first before God. And I would be a liar if I told you I didn't struggle with this anymore. I do. But I genuinely, I can genuinely tell you that you know I'm overwhelmed with joy. Not because I'm who I want to be, but because I'm not who I used to be. Allowing Jesus into my heart, or rather giving my heart to Jesus, meant that he was going to rearrange some of the priorities in my life. And Jesus has been working with my wretched heart, rearranging those priorities. And he's been showing me how I can put him first. And I'm going to tell you something. It was a lot different than what I thought he was going to do. 
I think each of us are considerably practiced at resisting Jesus. We all have off-limits areas for him. And because of this, many of us won't even allow him to get even a foot inside the door of our hearts. Instead, we attempt to conform him into who we want him to become. If you're going to come in and, and be a part of, of my life, then you got to be like this. We should know that Jesus is never going to fit any kind of mold that we have for him. He is never going to be everything we want him to be. He is, however, everything we want ourselves to be. I mean, think about it. Deep down, we wish we had the confidence to stand before a storm when we feel like we're going to die and tell it, Peace, be still. We often pray that God would somehow give us the patience that Jesus somehow mastered. We get down on ourselves because we're unable to exercise the self-control to overcome our flesh. But Jesus was perfectly self-controlled. We don't, we don't want him to be like us. Deep down, we want to be like him. Which is why Jesus came. Romans 8.29 says, For those God whom, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We want to be like him, not the other way around, not deep down. We, want, we, we don't want him to be like us. We want to be like him. And sure, if you invite Jesus into the areas that are typically off limits, he'll change things. But, it, but if Jesus can turn water into wine, what do you think he can do with your life? And you know, if we were really happy, really happy with the way things were? Why then do we consistently look for new ways to be happy? Just food for thought. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.